0: It's the Life of Gem audio and video podcast, no longer live. For the new year, 2024, we have a new format. We are going straight to recording and then to audio, and the video will be available too. So check us out on Apple Podcasts, all streaming platforms, on the Life of Gem Facebook page, and also um, on my author page, JuanitaEmance.com. And like I said, it's a new year, a new beginning for the Life of Gem podcast, writers on writing. And I have one of the best writers, best people, best persons, professor, writer, Joe Scott Coe. And she is the author. uh, And give us a wave. She just did. She knows I love her. She's been a big supporter, mentor of mine. Um, So this book, Unheard Witness, just came out from University of Texas Press the Life and Death of Kathy Lesnar Whitman. Hopefully I said that right. If not, Joe will correct me, but it's a beautiful book. It was just released last year by University of Texas Press. It is a masterpiece and a master class on how to write nonfiction based on archival materials. And we're going to talk about that in our interview. Let me read Joe's bio and then we will get straight into the interview. Well, actually, Joe's going to do a little read and then we'll get into the interview. Joe Scott Coe's latest book is Unheard Witness, The Life and Death of Kathleen Lesnar Whitman, University of Texas Press, last year just released. Her previous two nonfiction books are Teacher at Point Blank and Mass, A Sniper, A Father, and a Priest, which has a relationship to this book, actually. A First-Time Exploration of the Relationship Between the 1966 UT Austin Sniper and His Priest Mentor, Reverend, Reverend Joseph Gil Leduc. Mass received the Silver Medal for Biography in the 2020 ELIT Awards. Jo's essays on intersections of public and private violence have been published widely for general as well as academic audiences. Her work has appeared widely, including in Salon, Catapult, the LA Times, American Studies Journal, Talking Writing, Pacific Coast Phylo- Biology the Press Enterprise, Superstition Review, and many, many others. She's received three notable listings in Best American Essays, and we know how hard that is, and two Pushcart Special Mentions. She's a professor of English at Riverside City College, i.e., where she was selected as the 57th Distinguished Faculty Lecturer in part for her study of archival materials, which we're gonna talk about. She's facilitated many community writing workshops. I met her in one. And for the Inlandia Institute and other organizations, when she is not writing or teaching, she enjoys reading, experimenting with new recipes and traveling. And just before we get into it, let me read a couple of these um, testimonials about this book, which is a testimonial in itself, um, because I think they say a lot. According to Publishers Weekly, it's an insightful close study of the connection between domestic violence and mass shootings. From the Austin Chronicle, Katherine McNevins, Joe Scott Coe is uniquely positioned to approach the story of Whitman's long-suffering wife with expert care and thorough research. And this is my favorite one by Lisa Olson from the Texas Observer. Affection and tension alternate throughout the narrative, which serves as a gripping reminder of the larger issue of how many domestic violence victims suffer from subtler kinds of emotional abuse and hyper-control for years before being physically targeted or killed. Welcome, Joe Scott Co. I am so honored to have you.
1: Thank you. It is an honor to be here with you, Winita. It's really special for me.
0: Oh yeah, uh, we took I took a memoir class for you, an invisible memoir over. Right, it was for
1: Inlandia Even That's yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Me and Francis and a couple and my friend Jennifer Bender and uh, right. the you taught me so much about the craft of nonfiction, a lot of which I used in my longer memoir about how to create space and resonance through religious imagery and mm-hmm. other tricks of the trade that no one could, you would never figure out on your own, kind of you, someone has to kind of, like spark that thing in your brain for you. And I appreciate how uh, much I learned from you. So let's get into the first reading. I'm going to go off stage here. It's just okay. you. And I know you're going to set up something for us. And then we'll get into the meat of the interview.
1: All right. So thank you. All on you. All right. So um, what I'm going to be reading is just a little piece from the beginning of Kathy Leisner's marriage. Kathy Leisner-Whitman's marriage to Charles Whitman, who was the UT Tower sniper in 1966. And um, this is setting up just kind of a sense that Kathy is trying to make the best of things and is trying to be hopeful, even though there's already been, within six months of being married, a major crisis in the marriage. Uh, in which she has actually um, confided with her family and there has been family response to it. Um, But now she's actually gonna be dropping out of school on his behalf. 12 days passed and on Valentine's Day, 1963, Kathy composed a long letter to her parents after yet another phone conversation about bad news. She used tidy sheets of five by seven, three ring college ruled notebook paper, that mismatched the number 10 business envelope she enclosed them in. And she approached the task in a more formal style than usual with longer, more developed paragraphs, almost like a short essay. The impeccable penmanship and lack of edits suggest that Kathy may have copied the letter very slowly from a first draft, perhaps with a significant degree of input or supervision from her husband. After her standard salutation and an acknowledgement of the phone call, Kathy drove home the central point. Charlie's grades were insufficient to keep his scholarship. The Marines were calling him back to active duty at Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and she was dropping out of college. This is from the letter. Somehow, I think it will be better. After all, you and Daddy didn't have it easy either when you first got married, and I guess Everybody has to do some things the hard way. The only thing that will be hard on me is having to leave you and Daddy and Nelson and Ray for so long. I guess it just shows how much of a kid I still am, but I sure do hate to leave Texas. I guess maybe I'm not grown up yet, even if I am 19 years old. I guess the main thing I wanted to ask or tell you is this. After Charlie talked to Daddy last night, He said he thought that you and daddy both regret my marrying him, especially since it is his fault that I have to drop out of school. I can't make him believe any different. So it is up to you. I know you are disappointed in my having to quit school, but you also know that if at all possible, I will finish sooner or later. It is true that if we hadn't gotten married, I would still be free as a bird and be able to finish school But then I also wouldn't have that big lovable lug for a husband. I love him very much, and I think he is and always will be a wonderful husband and someday father. I feel sure that both of you feel the same way, even if you are disappointed and mad at him right now. Believe me, he realizes his mistake more than anyone and knows just as well how much work lies ahead. I hope you will consider all this and make him feel he's not considered the biggest louse in the world. Kathy urged her parents to come and visit if you can next weekend signed with all my love. Kathy ended with her name only. She enclosed the somber white document indicated she had already withdrawn from the university of Texas. No similar record for her husband was included after all she had done to improve her grades the previous summer and her first semester as a married woman, Kathy was now leaving Texas, not because of her own lack of achievement, but because of Charlie. The letter emphasized her judgment and agency, even as she made a plea on his behalf. I can handle it, she seemed to say. I can make it work, and the marriage will get better. But Kathy would soon find herself herself more isolated than ever, and whatever she had confided to her mother about those first early days as Mrs. Whitman, she was going to face more of the same and much worse. Wow. So strong.
0: And I, we were just talking about this in the green room off stage. but what struck me most as I was re- rereading this this week, and I finished it late last night, is the pace you write at there's a lot of tension and suspense it's almost like a mystery in some ways in that way because we already but we already know the ending here which is what i like about it because it's why i don't like mysteries but that last line you just said about soon she would find herself in maybe i'm paraphrasing here in an even worse position and more isolated due to charles because that's what's so interesting about kathy yeah. She comes from a beautiful family, supportive, loving. And she learns very early on. And then some red flags about Charles's father and family. Yes. Yeah. And what draws her to him? You wonder like that to me was the mystery. She loved him, but why? Especially when he causes her so much stress and pain, both literally and figuratively. Right. Um, And you have this other sentence on page 244 where, um, the brothers expressing a lot of concern to the family, right? Um, yeah. Earlier on, Nelson is telling the mom and dad, like, he could kill her. And then you have this line, domestic abuse advocates would come to understand decades later that men who use non-fatal strangulation as a show of force and strength are highly likely to murder their partners. Like, yeah. Nelson was right. And it must haunt him, I wonder. Um, and I know he's not really in the book. But he was a... Let's talk about how this project came to fruition. The letters of Kathy were given to you for use by her brother, which was such a gift, I can imagine, because he wanted her voice to be heard, I'm sure. Is that why?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, the story is it's not old like the medieval times old, but it is, it's more than 50 years old. It's an, it's an iconographic mass shooting American tragedy kind of story. Right. And, um, and a kind of prelude to the atrocities that we're experiencing, you know, all of the time now. Right. But maybe it has-
0: um, just really quick, tell our viewers and listeners who Charles Whitman is.
1: So Charles Whitman was the University of Texas tower sniper in 1966. Um, You probably, even if you don't know the story, have seen the pictures, you know, August 1st is the anniversary of that shooting. And the tower shooting is what it's sometimes called. That's a shorthand for it. And you can sometimes see pictures around the anniversary or in other stories of mass shooting. Well, they'll say the first mass shooting on a college campus was, and they'll do a little you know, um, summary graph or something like that. But the picture is the tower and sometimes a puff of smoke. You can see from gunshot either up or down. Um, and, uh, and so he, he murdered, um, uh, people from the tower and wounded people from the tower. And of course, no one, when they heard those bangs was thinking, oh, it's another mass shooting. What do we do? What's our process? It was like, is that a car backfiring or, you know, there was just no frame of reference for that. Um, But what people don't know um, and this is consistent. I think that um, the, the Austin Chronicle reviewer even mentioned it. Like, did you know that Charles Whitman was even married? Um, and he killed his mother and his wife before he committed these public atrocities. So she was kind of, you know, she, she'd been in this abusive, uh, marriage for four years. He'd been abusing her for four years before, you know, he, uh, abused anyone publicly, at least on that kind of a scale. And, um, and so that's kind of the thing where it's like wow, and then we and then we know now because people are starting to study it. I, something I started writing my salon piece in 2012, 13 was about just kind of thinking about you know a men who do this often hurt someone in person first, mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of there were a bunch of things I was thinking about as I was starting to work on this story actually, um, Mass, the previous text, and so. Um, but now we're looking at it and, and we're finding that it's, you know, more than half, up, up to 70% wow. perhaps. Um, and so that raises a whole other question, which is, you know, we care when it happens at the bank or the church or the, the tower. You know, of course we do. And those are atrocious things. But we are also missing things that are happening off screen. So this was a way, you know, coming back to Nelson. Nelson wanted his sister to be visible in three dimensions you know, when the internet came out and and the first kind of pass of the archive, the forensic archive was made available. Some things were scanned. One of those things, of course, was her, one of her um, teacher portraits. But the other thing was the crime scene photo. Mm-hmm. And and any anybody could Google if they wanted to, and those things would pop up. And so here's this, you know, person who's you know, murdered in the most ghastly way. and um, and so, and then, but yet, who was she, and what was her experience of this of this like? There was just kind of no there wasn't any place for that or it didn't exist yet. and that that was that was haunting him, that was bothering him. And so I wrote a, a long piece when I met him in the course of some other research. um, he started talking about the letters and I wrote a piece for Catapult, and then we kind of went from there. Um, Wow. Yeah, so.
0: And, you know, a lot is unsaid in this book. Um, A lot of the violence is implied or it's subtle. We know that he has hit her in the mouth. We know that he did these judo moves on her. We know that as you said before they do it on other people including other people other than the wives he put a sleeper hold on someone strangulation yeah. hold and knocked someone out and really injured that person there was a lot of red flags about charles including his father How did you do that research? And let's talk about the research that you did working with archival materials, how hard that must. Because, I mean, I wrote a memoir and I did a little bit of research, double checking songs and stuff like that. And I got my best friend's letters that we used to pass in high school. I didn't have my side. I had her letters so I could capture our voices back then, but that was more of an exercise to stimulate my imagination that I was using in creative nonfiction to recreate Jenny as a character. But you, you, this is more of a journalistic exercise in my opinion and reportage in a way with a creative bent. A lot of it is you're stick, you're sticking very um, intently on who these people are that you have researched. Talk about that because it's a little bit different than let's say writing your own memoir where you can take some liberties.
1: Sure. So, um, so we can talk about the archive piece first. So the, my first work with the archive at all was for that article for the 50th anniversary of the shooting. And, um, and Nelson sent me a very large sample. At that time was 200 ish letters. um, And Yeah. And And these
0: are Kathy's letters, her mom's letters back and forth.
1: Here's the thing that's so interesting. Often in archival research, you have one part of the correspondence and then it's a whole other process to go find the other pieces. So in this case, we had her letters to him, his letters to her, her letters to her mother and parents and vice versa, her parents or her mother's letters to her. Um, And then there were photographs and other kinds of documents as well. And never mind. Remember, the other thing is this was not coming to me cold. Um, I had already really studied the secondary and the primary forensic material for the other book that I was working on. So I was already in terms of the chronology and kind of some of the, the I already knew that that was already built out. And like where where did Kathy fit into that and where was Kathy in that? um, was kind of like, oh, there's, here we go. And so let's do that. So, um, as I began working with the letters, you know, there are things like, we're talking about a massive, by the end, when I had all of them, it was over 600 letters. Wow. And these are not notes. I mean, archives are all different, you know, but, Mm -hmm. um, these are some of them, some of them are thousands of words long. um, there are often, you know, there were different things I had to do. So, in addition to scanning them and then transcribing them, I was doing that work during the pandemic. So you I'd transcribed
0: ar- them yourself. So the cursive yes. letters. Oh wow, that must have been a lot of work.
1: Yeah, it was. So it was from from the primary document to the scan to the you know to the transcription, and at some point because it was ma- it was massive. I mean, Kathy's portion is is. Um, is about 200,000, 300,000 words. That's Kathy's portion alone. His is a little bit longer than that. And so again, so they're all of those things. So it's the material, the raw materials. Um, there is then the separation of the voices and then the integration of those voices. And so understanding and then thinking about um, how the letters are speaking to each other, what's going on in the world at the time, what's the social atmosphere. So things like music, I think, you know, that's kind of a thread that I pull through. Um, there are things- I, Just really
0: quick. I love how you use this concept of female empowerment through music. You use the Nancy Sinatra song, These Boots Are Made For Walking, and you use a song Charles likes, which, you know, about how he wants more loving feelings. Right, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, these are things that are mentioned in the letters sometimes, and sometimes they're not, but it's interesting how they, you know, um, you don't own me doesn't make it to number one, but these boots are made for walking does, it's just a little bit later, and I, I was thinking a lot just because I was living in these voices, which is something that you kind of have to do, I, I mean the amount of time I've spent in Charles Whitman's head is probably less healthy than, you know, a human should. But I mean, I, there was that too. And so thinking about, you know, how would that sound? And you know how that, how that song, these boots are made for walking starts. It has this very catchy, you know, but, but the, but the bass goes down this, it's like, you know, and so it's like, uh Oh, so when you hear that, you, you know, I, you know, for some, there's that kind of reaction, of like, "Oh yeah, here we go." But yeah. that would not necessarily be heard the same way by someone who was threatened by women, who was very discouraged, or about his own uh, inability to thrive, or his own history of abuse, or his own you know, whatever. And the, the the idea of the you know strong woman um, has to be knocked down. Um, she's perfect, but she can only stay at this level, you know. And so. um yeah. Yeah, so and I, she's
0: so accomplished, Kathy. Um, and all of the stress in her life, and I think her mother tells her this at some point, is caused by Charles and his family. And oh, she's just, you know, she works at the, she's working like double jobs, going to right. school, taking double right. courses, supporting right. Charles, who's in the military, yes. who can't help but get into trouble after trouble, after issue, right. and get kicked out of school because of his GPA, and then she has to leave. And then, I don't want to give the book away, but, but yeah, a lot it of
1: gets it gets better. Like it never, no. it never, it it keeps getting worse, you know? Yeah. And she, and she does. Uh, that's the thing that when I, when I first was working with the letter, first time I saw them, I didn't know what I was going to see there, yeah. you know? And the thing that really struck me, they are separated for um, almost two of their four years married, which is really remarkable. And we'll talk a little bit more maybe about that. Thank God she got that time. Is what I exactly. That's exactly right. And and it's a time when she can she reconnects with her family. She reconnects Mm -hmm. with Texas again. She's back in school, and she she graduated as we would say on time, quote unquote, in that in a four year cycle, despite all of this other Mm -hmm. turmoil. It was just like no, you can't take this from me, and that tells Mm -hmm. us a lot about her and also about other. I think other people who may be in these situations who are making it work, you know, it's like, God damn it. I, you know, this isn't happening to me. (laughs) And, and yet, and yet you can't, you can't always, you know, prevent that without getting out. And, and I think that that, that buying that time, which was, I think a very savvy, uh, thing that she and her mother did, it's like, well, it's not about divorce, but we're going to start over now, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to remember who I am, and I'm going to accomplish these things that I'd set out to do, and and get myself sorted, and in the archive, the very first pass that I did to the sample that I had, what I noticed was how her strength um, mm-hmm. in pushing back against him, and being very direct yeah. with him, gets yeah. Stronger the longer they're apart. And so it's like so that voice really it's like, wow, okay, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. And then of course, now what we can see with the complete, you know, complete record is that the closer his return comes, the higher stakes she knows she faces. And of course, she's seen the record. You know, let the record show.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Attorney Mats, right? Let the yeah. record so that he, it's not getting better. So it will have to be a miracle. And that's what we're going to hope for. And of course, you know, she runs out of time.
0: And she she clearly wants to leave him. You know, divorce is set. And the thing, you talk about her voice with him getting stronger as they're apart. And she's definitely forthright with him in yeah. a very feminist way about sex, about contraception, about pregnancy. Yeah. And I, I, I kept on about Yeah, yeah. For a woman of her time to be so um, just almost like blunt with him. I I was amazed by that and that he could take it. I mean, the the thing that's interesting is Charles does not become a villain, like one dimension Hmm. Mm -hmm. figure.
1: Okay. So we were, we were just talking about the um, forthrightness and clarity of her voice. Um, And, you know, I, I I try, I, one of the tricky things about dealing with any kind of historical material is that you, I, you have to be careful not to um, make a claim. So for example, I don't know that Kathy, this is before the word feminist was in the vocabulary you know, I talk about this in the introduction, you know, Playboy is everywhere. Ms. Magazine doesn't exist yet. You know, um, so, so the, the things she, she's killed, bef- just as some of that um, women's rights conversation is bubbling up. Um, and I, I think that I don't know that I would describe her, nor would I um, think she probably would use the word feminist, Uh, For herself. And and I think it's really important to think about that. Um, I mean, we could think about this with any kind of activism um, where it's possible to advocate for your life, for your dignity, um, for yourself in a way outside of a kind of theoretical frame. Because now we're in a place where, you know, it's kind of like people, we we feel like we need to identify right politically in a particular kind of way. Um, so, so that was important for me. I always kept that in mind, um, that, that, uh, the clarity of her voice was important just as that, like without ther- therapy, she didn't go to therapy. She wasn't, you know, a sociologist. She yeah. wasn't identify. you know what I mean? Um, and I think that- it's almost like, um, You know, my mom, when she met my
0: dad, she was never a cooker. And she was like, you need to help with this and you need to help with that. It had nothing to do with feminism. She'd read no texts about feminism, had no idea who Gloria Steinem was, didn't, was outside of that. It's more like, like you said, they're advocating for themselves. And I think it was part of Kathy's personality to be very direct, to be very outspoken, probably naturally. She talks about some of the stuff she dealt with at school, you know, with professors.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think too part of it, some of this is is um regional. You know, there's a certain kind of um Texan woman. Uh that sounds weird. I don't mean it like there's a kind. I just mean that um I know what you mean. Yeah particularly on in, in farm life at this particular time, there I found this really interesting historical commentary that was talking about how gender didn't really exist on a farm because everybody's work is the work. And you can see throughout, you know, once Kathy gets married, she is not exempt. If she's home, she's out, she's got to go help, you know, cut the calves or she's helping her brother spray for bugs like that. Those kinds of things were just kind of like, this is work we have to get done. We'll do it. And if something's not fair, you say so. And and so I think, you know, that's one of the really heartbreaking, uh, I think, aspects of this is when you think about how quickly their courtship and marriage that happened, how quickly she was tied to him. If you just imagine if she had six more months, yeah, you know, even if, even if, you know, this, this very dicey to put it mildly priest had, had put them through the paces as he was supposed to do and said, no, nope, you've got it. You're going to have to do the lessons. You're going to have to do the thing. And it's going to take the time. If she had been bought some more time, some of these things it would have been like, Mm, you know, you're, I think you're sexy, but maybe this isn't the best I can do. And that's one thing that's very, very, um, I think it comes through towards the end as she's getting closer to his coming home again. (laughs) And she, and she's, you know, really trying to lay down track, you know, I've changed in my thinking, we're going to have to accommodate each other's growth. And she's really talking about herself. She always, kind of loops him in, but she's talking about herself. And you had this sense, there's this one scene that really struck me where she talks about going to a bar alone. Now, I don't know if she really went alone, but she usually talked about who she went with and, you know, but she, she it's in the weeks leading up to him coming back and she's, she's thinking about this sexual um, double standard a lot. And she, you know, that she's just like, is this really, is this really what marriage is supposed to be like? Is this really what sex is like? Is this like, is this really all, all I get? And can it, can it be better? And, and, um, that is very, I think that whether you're married or not, um, I think that, that experience is very real. Still, um, that kind of sense of, wait, what did I get myself into? I didn't envision my my life like this. How is this going to play out? And what will I do next if this continues to be bad or worse? And, you know, yeah.
0: I I love that idea of um, in an alternate universe, Kathy getting more time, um, you know, because her dad uh, clearly has misgivings about Charles red flags early on her brother red flags early on. And yeah. Kathy knows what a good relationship is like. She's witnessed her mom and dad's relationship and her mom actually gets pregnant in her forties. Right. Has a baby. And right. I love that part that Kathy yeah. to spend time with that baby. And yeah. Kathy seems like she had some infertility issues, struggles, or maybe it was purposeful. Who knows? Well, Um, she never got pregnant, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think a lot about if she had gotten pregnant quickly, which I think would have been his plan that would not have been good for her or for that baby for sure. And we know that abusers, particularly homicidal abusers, pregnancy is very, very rough for, for the woman, for the female partner. Um, And so Um, it's interesting how she, she likes the idea of motherhood. She wants to be a parent. And she also in practical terms, when it comes down to it, she, she's always erring on the side of it really isn't a good time. You know, I'm really glad that I'm not pregnant. I'm, I'm relieved. There's that whole thing about, it's not really a phantom pregnancy, but when, right. you, You know, that whole thing where he's already told her parents, and his, parents, and his parents yeah parents, excuse me his parents yeah. and she's like I wish you hadn't told them but then she's also trying to use that possibility to bargain some other asks that she has which is we're not going to florida to live with your father and your his rage and all of that and that's very art, you know clearly articulated it's not ambiguous so um i think that uh You know, again, with relationship to the contraception, I just want to talk about this because this is really the contraceptive formula that she she was on was one of the you know, first. Right. The first pills that was available even before it was a right. It was people had access to it. And, you know, it was a very different time where when because they're separated, she's yo-yoing on and off because the thinking was not yet. Okay, I'm going to be taking these pills. This they actually are benefits to my system and to my body. It's why would you take contraception if your husband wasn't there?
0: Mm. I wondered that. I was like, right? oh, I know she was on
1: contraception
0: on and off and that could be why she's not getting pregnant, but they didn't know the science behind that at that point that you needed a certain amount of time off, right? And you
1: have the social and you have the social uh, you know, burden of, again, like, well, why would you continue to take it? So she starts taking it before they get to get, you know, so, so, and again, back to my point about the formula, the formula was a very um, strong mixture, very, you know, now we have all these different nuances and different kinds of medications and, you know, hormone replacement therapy is the thing. And there's little gradual, you know, things you can do. This was a very, you know, heavy, heavy duty cudgel mm-hmm. and lots of side effects. You know, she talks about the the, um, uh, she has a varicose vein, you know, she, she doesn't know, we don't know that that was for sure connection, but probably right. That they, that's one of the things that they've talked about now. So it's, it's just interesting because again, her wellness, her health, and this is again, why I was focusing the way I was, it's kind of like she had needs that she was not able to support. She needed medical treatment that she, you know, um, she could have could have had, and at that time too, there's no there's no HIPAA, you know, right. and so so the the husband talks to the doctor and says, give her these, you know, can we tell me what happened in the appointment or do this because I want you to do this and fix her and all of that. That that comes up very early too. It, whatever Kathy was upset about, he's like, oh, you need a psychiatrist. You know, that happens in the very first six months that they're married. That then continues and kind of his his idea that he's a medical expert, a sexual expert, a financial expert. Like, it's just, yeah. Which
0: he's none of the above. And then the control he exerts on Kathy and the way that Kathy and her mother, Frances. Frances is her mother's name, right? Yes, Um, right. The way they maneuver. I found that fascinating. He would take her letters. Yes, you didn't have a telephone. This is how isolated she is at some point, you know? She's working 10 hours a day somewhere, taking the bus, which he doesn't have seem to have a problem with, which is weird in itself, right? You you want to control every aspect of her life, but you don't mind her slapping away on this bus and stuff for 10. But
1: remember, 80 he's keeping 80% of her wages, though. (laughs) So so I guess there's the benefit. I mean, you know, so yeah. Yeah, what do you think of the
0: mother character? I I thought she was a very um, strong part of the book. Was that purposeful? Where you wanted to show the relationship oh. between Kathy and her mother and Francis. the way that they maneuver? Uh, Francis, yeah, Francis. Francis,
1: uh, absolutely. I I think and and that that first letter that we that I included in full, which is when um, something very gravely has is gone wrong. And I I thought it was such a powerful document um, and a testament to her uh, character and her fierceness and her diplomacy, kind of all of those things in one, and her savviness too. Because again, as as we know, sometimes intervention can create more hazard yeah. for the person in the situation. So she's in a very difficult position. Um, and also you have the stereotype threat of the meddling mother-in-law. So she's up right. against all of those things, Never mind just the sexual women don't know. I mean, she starts off with, I know you think no woman can think logically, but I'm going to try. And then she, she moves through this. And, and I think that it d- displays compassion and an awareness about the history and the influence that that has had on her new son-in-law. Mm. But I just it's so moving to me the way she says that mm. she has noticed this deeply profound change in her daughter's experience of the world that, you know, that's not, you know, I, I'm going to take this time to, you know, uh, give you a lecture on how to whatever it's she's really um, fierce in her uh love for her daughter in an unabstract way. Um, And I I just, and and then what we see is when they are separated, we see that playing out inside the letters with, with uh, between Kathy and her mother, because again, she's not allowed to have a phone, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's just, it's almost like she's in a castle, like in some kind of awful fairy tale, she's been put in this castle taken from her family. And she's like, well, I'm going to be writing letters And even that then, as soon as that, as soon as it's really a serious conversation about returning home, suddenly we don't see some of those letters. They don't survive and what happened. And so, yeah, it's uh, I, I think that they had a very strong bond. And, you know, again, in a different story, you wouldn't have that. I think that that's yeah. also the other reason I thought it was so important, because I think we have stereotypes about who's like likely to be in this situation or who should never be in this situation. Mm-hmm. And and um, and in Kathy's and Kathy's case, uh, what we see is someone who had that connection to her family wasn't running away from her family, no. um, you know, and really fought to keep that that tether intact.
0: Someone on Facebook, I was posting your book, and they said, this book taught me, and I'm paraphrasing here, the comment that was on my Facebook page, that anyone can be subject to control domestic violence and um, inter-partner violence. Um, Anyone um, can get put in that situation because Kathy was not a typical person that you would think would end up there, Um, but she was so controlled by him. And let's talk about the themes of violence and sure. all of your work, if you don't mind, if you can tell sure. people about mass and about other books you've had and you talk, you know, a lot about statistical information about what these people, what they look like, the people that commit mass violence. Right. Yeah. I mean, and look like I mean.
1: The pro. A pro, a pro, pro yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the thing the other thing that's really harrowing is that violence in the, in relationship prior to a mass or public violent event is very common. Um, There's a, there's a study, I I don't have the journal in front of me, but um, a study in 2021 found that in fact, when that's the case, which is, you know, up to 70% of the time, um, you know, that's, that's, that's not a one-off. It's not kind of a, Oh, let's watch that trend. It's, it seems to be the more we study it, the more we see that it's there. Um, And that that actually when that is the case, the, the public um, casualties are higher. Wow. So, so um, so in this case, again, what, what drew me to this was, Thinking about, you know, my, my book Mass was about the influences on Whitman himself, you know, his, his religious mentor who, after my book came out, was identified as credibly accused of sexual abuse. His father, who was a flagrant and shameless, you know, proclaim, proclaimative, if that's a word, um, abuser of his wife and his children. Um, I think there's a there's an article where he said again, paraphrasing something like, "Well, you know, frankly, I should have beaten them more." Oh my, um, you know, and and this is after the shooting, and he kind of got oh. a pass where it's like, "Well, man in distress," you know, and so we have a history of abuse.
0: It's and, like, no, you created the monster, right?
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, the, the thing is, it, it's totally understandable that this happens. We know. We know that most people who are victimized actually want to not do it. So it isn't just yeah. causal, but, but you know this from your work as an attorney with your clientele that very often what we see is that someone who, who, who commits these kinds of acts or is in this kind of situation, we're going to find a history of abuse of whether it's physical, sexual neglect or whatever. Mm-hmm. That that's not uncommon at all. And in Kathy's story, I think what's really, really um heartbreaking is that you see two people who did exactly the opposite. Kathy is a chronic victim of her husband, and she's doing everything she can to understand it, to make it better, to try to teach him, to, to try to you know make things better for herself. And I think, you know, again, it does suggest that she wanted to get away whereas in his case he was replicating he couldn't reflect uh and and any of the kinds of you know oh, I'm sorry or whatever it's it's shallow at best and um yeah. and he he just repeats the damage um and so so yeah i i um that's something that that is that is just over and over again is something that we that we see in, in, in the case studies and in the, the bigger research, you know. Um, but going back really quick to Charles'
0: character, which we were talking about earlier and we got cut off, um, he is not a one-dimensional figure. And I can tell you this, you know, working in the criminal defense field and representing people that have done some pretty horrific things at times, Everyone has a story. Everyone has a father and a mother is what my public yep. defender, Steve Hardman, says. Everyone has a history. And I would say, you know, there is a small percentage of sociopaths, probably mm-hmm. five to 10 percent, maybe less, maybe less. In all my times as a public defender, over 15, 16 years now, I've only met a couple people that truly terrified me. Yeah. Yeah which is shocking considering the kinds of cases I've handled, but I do mental health. So usually there's a mental health component that I can gain some empathy through. But what I really liked about this book is that Charles is somewhat of a very three dimensional figure in himself, even though it's through Kathy's lens, right? Which is what I loved. Um, Because he can't be all bad. If Kathy loves him is what I kept kept thinking. Um, He's horrific. He did horrific things. He um, is horrific to her, but there must be some small redeeming quality in him that she saw, at least initially, that kept her interested in him. And then it was too late to get out, kind of thing, when she saw his true full character. I mean, at least that's what I think. I mean, how do you feel about that? About, in some ways, you're giving us a time capsule. This is right during the Kennedy assassination times. There's all this history and epistolary letters, but. Kathy herself is just a, such a, a vibrant character. And then yeah. you keep on saying, why does she stay with him? But you understand how she can't get out either. She's stuck. She's stuck yeah. in a prison, you know, in a prison in a way, like you said, in a castle in a horrible fairy tale.
1: But, uh, yeah, and I, I think that um, the issue, one of the issues we have to remember is how um, when someone gets so... She was married very quickly. She was married within 6 months of meeting this person. She'd never met his family. Um, you know, right. that, was, right. that was it was locked down, right? And he's very focused on the idea of capture of her even before they're married. Um, good point. And, and that that's very, you know, that's very romantic. You know, the very first document we have from him in the archive is this thing where she gets in a little uh, fender bender and what appears to have happened is that you know she takes responsibility for the accident he goes and uh puts the heavy on some guy and gets him to agree to something that doesn't even really do anything but it's one of the first places we see his handwriting you know and so this idea that he's this he's this protector or he's this knight never mind the violence about that or whatever but it's like oh there's Think about the, the zeitgeist of the times, this is post-World War II. Um, there's there's also the man in uniform. There's beauty and the beast. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of things that are just kind of part of the milieu of girlhood. And, and then also once you get married, well, you know, you can even hear it with her. Well, well that's, you know. Everybody has their problems. And so these false equivalencies and also that sense of this isn't really happening to me. Like this isn't abuse. And and the ways that the people who are under these circumstances will equivocate to make do um, conscientious uh, victims, victim survivors will make it their fault. We see that a lot inside this. Um, It's a strategy. We see that a lot from Kathy, um, you see how conscientious she is about everything in terms of work and showing up and making sure, and she's worried about getting a seat, you know, during a time of incredible distress, right. Uh, her husband's court-martialed and he pulls her, he pulls her to, he has, she has to go to his court-martial and she's about to, to take a bunch of exams. Like, so, so she's very hard on herself and, um, you know, and so that, um, that is also plays a part in it too, and that sense of love, well, affection, attraction, how how that gets confused sometimes. Remember, also, she was 18, 19 years old. She's young, right? So she she's young, and and um and had had uh, This is where the kind of the privileges of her her economic security, her family background, her her being a young white girl that all of those things, in a way um got weaponized because she kind of she didn't have a she wasn't a guarded personality. She hadn't kind of learned mm-hmm. to, you know, flinch and get ready. And that was not she was open. And you can see, like, even the thing about the Polaroid photographs, you know, you can see how mm-hmm. there are these things and think about now in the, the 21st century, how people are like, oh, this sounds fun. or oh, maybe this'll be okay. This this seems great. And then things can be turned on you. And then it's like, oh, that's my fault then. You know, or I, I did that. And oh, he might what's he gonna do with those pictures he took? Or yeah. and um, and so so I think that in terms of I think we need to be careful not to read Charles Whitman through Kathy's effort mm-hmm. to to see the good in him. Right. Um, I'm not saying that he was. He's a human being, so I'm not doing that. But I think that that actually is part of what made it so difficult when Kathy's beginning to tell people, because they had seen Kathy, They'd seen him and their marriage through Kathy when she was alone. It's called vouching, I think, is the term. At some
0: mm-hmm.
1: use it for it, where she's making. You know, she looks good and she's on her feet and she's a go-getter and she's studying hard. And she's, you know, really, again, she she's trying to make the marriage work. And in spite of him, she's accomplishing all this stuff. People are seeing him through her. Mm -hmm. And she's also like, no, it's going to be okay, You know, and so and so if you are having contact with Kathy, you're thinking, well, Charles must be, you know, he must be great. That must be. And so then what a mind F as a person when you're like, I'm going to have to get out of here. How do I reverse this story that I've, oh no. And then again, now wow. it's that's my fault. And so, so that I so think is interesting.
0: So yeah. complicated, you know, yeah. and um, what uh, I want to talk a little bit, cause we have about 10, 15 more minutes sure. and I want you to read at the end, at least five minutes. Talk about how you structured this book just really quick, because I think that what I thought was so profound when I finished it for the second time, I kept on thinking about how Kathy's character is so paramount and the act of violence and the, uh, that inhumane and horrific monstrous things that Charles does at the end, killing her, killing his mother uh, who had escaped the father, which is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, killing everyone at UT, the many people he shot. And he'd always had this fantasy of taking a deer rifle um, according i think there's a snippet in the book that he had this fantasy um but that's really the after note or it, it's really kind of um and it's not an aside because i don't want to minimize it but it is not the focus we are we already know that in this yeah. book so yeah. how did you how did you walk that line of keeping the suspense keeping the story going but the in the end, that really was not the story. It was it was the end of the story, but it wasn't the whole story.
1: Right. Um, I think that again, going back to the archive, um, the thing that's so interesting about intimate materials like letters. They have dates on them. They have a little coffee smudge or, you know, they smell like perfume or there's a little corner that's torn or they, it's it's a very human. I mean, people licked stamps at that point, you know, still. Um, and so what you're what you, you know, what what I was imagining is this is a person who started their day They've worked a letter into their day. this happened today. It, it's, it's almost some, some of the letters are very diary like, particularly when she doesn't know if he's going to respond. And so I had I had kind of um, I guess, learned, it kind of achieved a certain kind of muscle memory of this is a person who is going on to the next day. Mm. And so so that sense of being alive, and that sense of um, of moving forward was very much a part of the way Kathy's voice and the and these the material physical materials of her letters um, kind of taught me to think about her because again instead of just well and and then she was killed and then that was it well she wasn't mm-hmm. living towards a murder she was mm-hmm. living towards an escape. she she, I think I think and Nelson has shared this with me he he thinks she would have gotten away from him but she was exhausted she was very beaten down the term that I learned and that I used towards the end and I think there's evidence for it is prospecticide she kind of is at a point at the end where she doesn't even know how to spell words that she knows how to spell um and and so so just to, to show and to try to keep, keep, I had to think about a couple of things. I had to think about the environment. I had to think about the chronology. I had to think about Kathy's voice and the way that I know certain things that she doesn't know are coming or there's yeah. a picture and the little picture and trying to sew those things together. Um, I tried not to, to, um, lean too hard, but there are certain things that are happening simultaneous to bad things that are happening to Kathy that were important to kind of show together because it's part of the mood of the time, you know? Um, and I think for number one, I starting with that hurricane and starting with this idea of det- systems of detection when it comes to weather at this point, you know, it's like simple. And what's, what's the human, the human thing is we know something's dangerous and we go from it. And Kathy's watching out behind her family home. She can see they're high enough ground that they don't have to flee, but she was born in an area where they're all, they're taking this one two lane freeway and they're trying to get as far North as they can as hurricane Carla, cousin wow. of Charlie. I mean, that just kind of that resonance just. Wow. Yeah, so so within I didn't
0: catch that. Um, I understood the hurricane part, but now when you're putting it in perspective as a symbol of detection, of warning, of ominous, of bad weather, of Move bad relationship-
1: safety, escape, and so the all, all that that that's the way her life starts. It's like, oh, of course, people run, people leave danger. Mm-hmm. You know, people get away from danger, and if we can see that it's coming, of course we go. And and so, you know, when do you know that your partner is dangerous, so dangerous that you need to go now? And then at the end, of course, um, you know, she she can't she can't tell and she's getting ready to go to work the next day.
0: Yeah. She has a full time job. She's been hired as a teacher. You know, it reminded me in a bit your book of a um, series of documentary episodes I just watched about the last hours of John Lennon's death. Oh wow! And it's about him being and him and um, you know his wife and his son and they're at the hotel and he's kind of coming and going, coming and going and there's all these other people that are kind of seeing little flashes and they're seeing the man who ultimately killed him in the taxi cab and
1: um oh weird so he was in he was on the scene yeah the, oh oh.
0: Yeah. And it reminded me of that because the focus of that documentary was not really about his death. It was about his life, about how, what was leading up to it. And I love how you say that he wasn't, she wasn't really um, living a life towards murder and that she would have gotten out. I know like through this book, I learned that the likelihood of her getting out, it would have happened if she would have been in a different time, even maybe she would have gotten out because she was so sophisticated and so highly intelligent and a born mediator and yeah. um and yeah. she was really because growing up in trauma myself i think what makes me a good lawyer is i kind of learned to navigate certain situations and put on different faces right and um she's really good at that she's yes. really good at that in work and school and at home with her family yeah. with charles you know it yeah I, and i just i kept on thinking we probably have no idea how bad it was
1: yeah for her yeah you know? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, I had to exercise a certain amount of restraint, um, because, I mean, there are a lot of things that I had to, um, that I had to include in a very candid way. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's the physical violence, there's some sense of sexual violence. Yeah. Um, never mind all of the just mean, mean, just constant. Oh, yeah. Um, and and kind of making her crazy. And and you think about the difference between her voice when she's 13 years old and her scrapbook and then towards the end, not even sure how to spell something at, at the end. Um, but, she's
0: beaten down by him, yeah. both literally and figuratively over the years yeah. by all the stress he causes her. That's yeah. clear. Yeah. But I do think she has the perspective that he is not good for her.
1: Yeah. And and it's so that's that question of, again, that recalibration. And so what's your next move and what would what would be necessary at that time? There was no no fault divorce. right? So 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 as a lawyer, you know, then what she would have had to do then she would have had to steal herself for that. She was not a rash person, but she would have had to really prepare i mean to go before a judge or you know to go into a court and to write these things down and and you know and then that sense of giving up to like oh i don't know if i can do that um that's that's uh it's so sad um and and unnecessary and and back to the idea of who's you know who's a victim i think again sometimes we don't think about well what is the victimizer doing and, and what does the, what is the person's experience of that teach us about the victimization, right? So mm-hmm. us, us not knowing how bad it was. Well, we can see it was pretty bad. And then it's imagining like, oh my gosh, like this is what, this is what we can see. Whoa, you know, um, and, and, and again, starting with, let's start with the ending and, and remember, this is someone who kills her in their, in their bed. And yeah. so
0: Right after intercourse, it appears right, or something close to it. Yeah. Or sleeping, who knows? But and she fought him.
1: Yeah, that, I, I, yes, and and the the uh-huh. idea the idea of um you know we do this. I think it's really to protect ourselves as readers or as people where we will say someone was murdered in their sleep. I I have never, unless someone was you know uh, on a drip of some kind. You know, just thinking about, and again, she had, (laughs) she had shared this, this bed with this person who was a light sleeper, nervous sleeper, had all kinds of other habits and issues. And so the idea that she, that's often inside the secondary record, she was, he was, she was killed in her sleep. And I'm just like, no, Mm -hmm. she was not. And the, and that's not really what the record shows. So, and he killed Um, his own mother. Yeah. Yeah. So, what
0: was the timing of that? If you know, was it mother? It was Kathy first, then mother, then the
1: mass shooting. So, so the there were no autopsies on either woman, and so they were making inferences as as best they decided to. Um, And the chronology that is agreed upon in the in the record is that um, he murdered his mother first. Oh, Kathy was Kathy was left home in bed. He murdered his mother first, came home and murdered Kathy and then did all of these preparations to get ready for going to the tower in the morning. The next the next day or the same day, but, you know, later in, in the morning.
0: And he was no longer a student at UT at that point. He'd been kicked out years earlier or was he no, back? He
1: was He was back at that time. Oh. It was actually I believe that that it was the beginning of finals week you know, and um, yeah, but he, he was back. So it was after he's out of the military at this point, he's discharged from the military and that was just kind of a steady decline, but he had re-entered and this was supposed to be kind of the great restart. And after a year, year and a half, um, you know, things were not better. He was not doing better or more, you know, and so,
0: and it was interesting, just really quick, that history of him being court-martialed. You talked about it briefly. He ends up getting a somewhat light sentence for gambling and all these nefarious things he was doing. Carrying
1: a gun, They wasn't supposed to have, which in the military is a big yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. And you wonder what would have happened had he gotten what he probably should have gotten. He could have gotten up to five years, I think, on that as part of the book. Um you, you yeah, that talks in there. that
1: with her parents, right? He's like, well, I mean, you know, I could go to Leavenworth, you know. Uh, or or this, probably in between. He even says, he even admits yeah. that he got off really light. And this is actually a resounding theme with him generally. was demoted, right? Yeah, he was demoted, and then he was able to get out early, which is often also, that's exceptional, um, mm. you know, especially in the Marines. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a resounding thing that he he either gets a light sentence or he gets in trouble and then people, he pushes against the consequence that he does get. And then people are like, Oh, he seemed really nice. And again, you know, handsome, white, uh, charming, mm-hmm. knows how to do the superficial thing. Um, and, uh, Yeah.
0: Well, wow. well, this has been a fascinating interview. I'm so glad I read this book again. Um, you know, I would urge everyone listening or watching to get this book. The University of Texas Press, all national and local retailers, bookshop, etc. I think right now it's on sale at UT Press, thirty percent off for the hardcover. And I have a copy I'm giving away. So if you share this podcast or this video audio, tag me, and I will put you in the drawing. Um, and I, I can give away more than one copy. I have another copy. So uh, a couple people might win. But I urge everyone to, this is such an important book for so many reasons. Uh, it's also a character study. And I love Kathy's character. And um, I really love how you brought her to life and memorialized her for all time. It's by University of Texas Press. Cat, Unheard witness, the life and death of Kathy Lesnar Whitman. Am I saying that right, Lesnar? It's
1: Lesnar. And, and I Leisner. wanted to say yeah, Leisner Whitman, and the other thing is just that it is it, it is in Kindle. It is an audiobooks too. So just if, if some people like to listen now, or they when they're gardening, I can't do it yet.
0: I'm not there. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, um, did you do the audio,
0: or did did an actress do it?
1: Oh, an actress did it. Tanya Eby did oh. it. Um, yeah.
0: Well, so. um, I look forward to getting the audio because I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts and audiobooks right now, and I, w- I would be fascinated to hear um, the audio of this. Um, talk really briefly uh, before you do your final reading about where people can find you, where they can find your work, Great. and then we'll end with your reading.
1: Sure. So uh, you can get in touch with me at joscottco.com. Um, and there's no hyphen in my web address, but if you put it up, it'll probably pop up anyway. You can email me through there if you're interested in, you know, visit to your book club or your classroom or something like that. Excuse me. I also have a newsletter. And so if you get in touch with me through my webpage, I can make sure you're added there. I try to keep my newsletter pretty straightforward where it's some updates about events um, and maybe some pictures from things that we've been doing. But I also do try to include in, uh, information and resources about either contemporary statistics of um, uh, intimate partner violence, you know, February is dating, teen dating violence awareness month, um, mm-hmm. or, or kind of what to do. So there, there are a lot of amazing resources, um, you know, the hotline, which is the the national, um, the national, you um, resource for people who are in trouble or but there are a lot of things we need to think about as bystanders so i try to include that as well because um sometimes it isn't you but you know you're working with someone or your friend or someone in your family may need some help and so we can be more educated about that so i try to include a few things about that so my newsletter um, contact me through joescottco.com. my email is there too so everything is kind of in that one place Um, And I'm looking forward to a couple of rotary appearances coming up. And um, I will say, just share this with you, um, that I was, I met two of Kathy's roommates from that period when she, when she returned to University of Texas and they have a book club in Austin. And so I'm going to have the privilege of being able to visit with them and, and talk with them about the story. So, so again, small groups or, or classrooms or whatever, I'm, I'm open and, you know, building my calendar for the new year.
0: Uh, Yeah. And um, just really quick, I think that's really important. And I think Victoria Waddle just did a book review of this on her library lady site where oh, she talks yes. about how That's important perfect. it is for young women to read this book because there's a lot of warnings and red flags that anyone can see and we are in a different time there's a lot more resources but when you're one-on-one it's just as scary you know, right. it doesn't matter what resources there are right. if you're in a traumatic and chaotic situation and being abused how do you get out so I think I really appreciated uh Victoria's perspective on your book
1: Yes, me too. Me too. Thank you for mentioning
0: that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I will share your webpage and all of that on my Life of Jam Facebook page. Go to my page and I'll share Joe Scott Coe's uh, author page where you can get all her events. Okay, so we're going to go back to you. And at the very end, we'll touch base really quick. But if you could read again for us so we can hear that beautiful literary voice of yours. Oh, thank you. Lovely book. And thank you for coming on. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm here.
1: Okay. (laughs) All right. So. So after Kathy is married, as I read at the beginning, she um, also uh, drops out of the University of Texas for a little bit, and she is taken, um, her husband takes her to Camp Lejeune um, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. But during that time, um, the violence continues, and she, in correspondence with her mother, is able to figure out a way to get home, and she comes back to the University of Texas. She re-enrolls. Um, And this picks up um, after they've been separated. Now she's come back and this is kind of part of that separation period, just as she's beginning um, on her journey again as a student and um, trying to, trying to regain her academic footing and her social footing and her connection with her family again. On Sunday, September 15th, 1963, Kathy unlocked the door of apartment number 106 at 803 West 28th Street before an evening of spotty thunderstorms and heavy rain in Austin. Her mother, Frances, and her brother, Nelson, accompanied her, and they had hit heavy traffic along the drag, which is a street that runs alongside the campus, a mixture of what she called moving in traffic and church traffic. To celebrate Nelson's birthday, the three family members ate dinner at Hill's Steakhouse. Kathy was excited to be assigned a room of her own in the shared apartment. The little bit I've been around the girls today, I think I would find it hard to live with one, she wrote, admitting self-consciousness about the change in her status from single co-ed to married woman. I seem sort of out of it when they start laughing and giggling, just like I used to. Kathy also shared photos of her husband with the roommates. They were all very impressed, she wrote. She made an appointment at Mr. Pat's hair salon to have her hair done, just as she has, had done as a freshman in fall 1961. She was starting over, almost. That same day in Birmingham, Alabama, a Ku Klux Klan bomb exploded at the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four African-American girls in a Sunday school classroom. It was a sadistic strike following civil rights victories for integration the previous spring, a graphic reminder that some men would always claim the prerogative to dominate and terrorize. Two days later, Austin activists organized quiet solidarity protests at local churches, schools, and on the UT main mall. Charlie's long letters dated on the cusp of this moment reminded Kathy of his own violence. On tiny address book papers, he wrote, baby, I am so sorry that I ever hit you, particularly that time in Jacksonville when I hurt your mouth in the car. Instead of punching on my honey and picking on her in the kitchen, he said he would overwhelm you with kisses and hugs the next time I see you, adding oddly, you're going to be a loser. He also wanted to bathe her and recommended she consider electrolysis for hair removal. If you'll have it done, I have the cash. He annotated an article Kathy had sent him about the fidelity of American wives and closed by asking her to remember the intimate Polaroids he had taken in Jacksonville. A vague threat in his rationale belied the assurance that he had burned them all. I wouldn't want anyone to see them through some accident they might. His wishes were few, he said, just some hunting rifles, specifically a Weatherby Magnum. Not yet at home at school, Kathy returned to Needville, her hometown, for one last long weekend before classes. After the challenges of winter, spring, and summer, she was resolved to put her best forward in a fresh chapter at UT Charlie would soon joke about her magical impact on a new policy restricting gambling in his company and tell her he passed his E5 test for sergeant status, anticipating promotion in December. Kathy looked ahead to his first leave, dreaming of dancing and dining with him at Club Caravan, supposed to be the best spot this year, she wrote. But when she returned from home to Austin, The night before the fall semester commenced, she found Charlie's long letters waiting for her, the ones containing apologies for physically hurting her. She identified the document precisely without mentioning any details of his language. Your little letter on the address paper was wonderful, she wrote with relief, adding hopefully, I'm looking forward to all the things you have in store for me. Kathy did not want to name the ugliness. She wanted a new beginning. Yet, despite all his promises to be a good boy, Charlie was headed for trouble. The coming months would prove traumatic for Kathy personally, just as violence in the country came to another terrible head. Wow.
0: Again, the way that you foreshadow, the way that you... um comment uh you as the writer we hear your voice there uh Mm. beautifully done so thank you i mean this must have been a hard story to write but it's an important one thank you anita yeah yeah so i just want to let everyone know that this episode um today just so i kind of set us orientated in time is january 13th this will be out on apple podcasts and all streaming platforms probably by January 17th, as will the video on my author page and on my Life of Gem Facebook page. I wanted to shout out that you please need to go get this book, Unheard Witness, University of Texas Press. And then at the end of the month, we're going to have another military um, themed a military connection book called Infidels, which uh, by one of my favorite poets, Vincent Cooper. And it's a really fascinating portrait of the military from a Chicano's perspective. Um, It's a bunch of poems and he talks about punk rock, military, Chicano culture, Texas culture, and um, so everyone get his book too, Infidels. It's available very reasonably on Mountfield Press and also on Amazon and uh, all other retailers. So if there's two books that you should buy for the new year, Unheard Witness should be the first and then pick up infidels. Because I mean, how I, I used to do Veterans Corps and we don't hear a lot of stories of Chicanos in the military and their perspective on the violence and kind of the regimented and the hierarchies yeah. of that and what it's like to traverse that. So thank you, Professor Joe Scott Coe. Thank
1: I, you, Anita. <laughs> I, I'm so grateful. I appreciate the time and thank you for being such a thoughtful reader. And um, and thank you for I, making room.
0: We could have done hours on this, to be honest. I think that a book club is a very good way for people to go on this, is get 10 people together and contact you. Because I think there's, a, I love to do close readings, but there's so much here. I was like, what do I focus on? And like I said, I read it twice, and I still feel like I could read it again and learn more. So thank you for writing it. it it's It's a magnum opus of
1: sorts, I would say. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Okay, everyone, we're going to, we're going to, Say goodbye, but um, see you again in a couple weeks. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye.